Poland. Uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 15th episode of Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you... How Polish avant-garde theatre is studied and admired all over the world. How Polish soups are perfect for hot summer days. Part one of our bi-weekly series, Smacznego, Eating Polish. And how tragedies from the past can bring people from different cultures together. Smacznego, we're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down for previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Polish cuisine represents a very wide variety of dishes and flavors. They come from the influences of 14th century French and Italian royalty from the worldly wives of 18th and 19th century Polish gentry, and from the flavors left behind by the invading armies of neighboring countries. Polish soups are very creative, and when the sun comes out and the days turn warm, the best of Polish cuisine are the chilled fruit soups. Served cold, they're refreshing, full of flavor, and a healthy treat loved by everyone in the family. Polish fruit soups are not too sweet, and I grew up eating them as a first course for supper, or as the main course of lunch, or as a heartier course poured over cooked egg noodles. Sometimes we had them as a healthier replacement for dessert. So there are no rules here. We love local berries right from the farm because they have so much more flavor when picked ripe. One of our favorites is strawberry soup, and it only takes a couple of minutes when you use an immersion blender or a mixer. Take a quart of ripe strawberries, washed and hulled, of course, a quart of buttermilk, half a cup of sugar or less if the berries are very ripe, and two-thirds cup of sour cream. Blend everything together until smooth, cool it down really well, and serve with crisp buttery croutons. You can make a similar soup with blueberries, ripe plums, or cherries. I add the sugar a bit at a time, and Peter keeps tasting letting the berries provide their own natural sweetness. The full recipe for these soups and information about our cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the fruit soups page dated June 18, 2015. Smacznego! One of the most significant names in the history of modern world theatre is Tadeusz Kantor, Polish theatre director, set designer, writer, painter, art theoretician, lecturer at the Academy of Fine Arts in Kraków, who died in 1990. 
UNESCO declared 2015 the year of Tadeusz Kantor to commemorate the 100th anniversary of his birth. An extensive program promoting knowledge about Kantor was organized around the globe. Michał Kobiałka, a University of Warsaw graduate, is a professor of theater in the Department of Theater Arts and Dance at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. He authored three books on theater, two of which are devoted to Tadeusz Kantor. He had a very special relationship with Kantor, which changed and shaped his academic life. Tadeusz Kantor is very well known to Poles, but not only to Poles. How is it possible that he's such an important person in, in, in the world of theater all over the world? I think that he's uh, known not only to theater people, but also anyone who is interested in visual arts and performance. Kantor was born in 1915 and he died in 1990. As last year we celebrated uh, the uh, centennial commemorating both 100th uh, anniversary of his birth, but also 25th anniversary of his death. I think that the reason why Kantor is known not only to the Polish audiences, but also primarily in Europe, but also in, 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 in the United States, in Canada, in Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina, is because Cantor was a painter, a theater director, stage designer, writer, and a theoretician at the same time. Uh, his most uh, widely known productions outside of Poland, like the dead class, Wielopole, Wielopole, let the artist die, I shall never return, and today's my birthday, introduced the Western audiences to uh, very particular non-traditional theater forms that had been shaped by Cantor and his presence on stage. I mean, that was one of the attributes of, of, of his theater, that Cantor was present on stage during every performance, and um, in a way, you know, his uh, particular aesthetic uh, very often aligned itself with radical transformations uh, in the theater happening, let's say, in the West. Your whole career, your whole life is really devoted to Cantor and his art and promoting him all over the world. How did your, your adventure with him start? In 1985, Cantor was in New York with his latest production, which was uh, Let the Artist Die. And it was presented at La Mama. I was asked to interview Cantor for um, a little theater magazine. And at the beginning, uh, the belief was that I was an American journalist and uh, Cantor was not necessarily interested in giving uh, interviews uh, uh, in New York at the time. However, he agreed for me to uh, join him for a, a short interview. So when I met with Cantor in 1985 and uh, when he found out that I could speak Polish and that I was actually from Poland, uh, a half an hour interview translated into a two-hour fantastic exchange uh, about his theater ideas. So I had a lot of material and um, I contacted at that time uh, the drama review and Richard Schechner. And uh, Richard Schechner said, yes, this is fine, but would you be interested in translating some of Cantor's theoretical writings? And at that time in 1985, the only other piece that was translated into English was Cantor's 
Theatre of Death Manifesto, and it was published actually in Canada first, uh, Canadian Theatre Review. I said yes, so I prepared a selection of Cantor's theoretical tr uh, writings, uh, which I translated into English, and they were published in the Drama Review, and this is how it all started. And so, indeed, um, for me also, uh, last year was an interesting year because I was celebrating 30 years of my engagement with Cantor, Cantor's theatre and his uh, writings about theatre. But I have to say that what started as an accidental encounter with this Polish uh, theatre director and a visual artist uh, completely changed how I think about theatre and how I talk about theatre, how I teach theatre and how I do other academic work. I'm a 10th century medieval scholar, but hadn't been for my encounter with Cantor, I would have never written the book that I did in 1999. Obviously, you must have known him very well as a person as well, right? I mean, you probably had a, a number of meetings with him. What kind of person was he? Uh, there are various different apocryphal stories about Cantor and how he behaved. Uh, my encounters with Cantor in New York were always extremely complex and uh, always connected with uh, his yet another production that was presented in New York. I only knew Cantor for five years, you know, from the time uh, we met in 1985 and Cantor died in 1990 and we were actually, we were uh, to meet in January 1990, I was supposed to, 1991, I was supposed to fly to Paris to his, to have an interview with him after his uh, latest production, which was Today's My Birthday, but of course that never happened. What was interesting in those encounters is that um, Cantor believed that it's necessary to have an engagement with theater academics. So, for example, in Poland, he worked very closely with Krzysztof Pleśniarowicz. In the United States, uh, he, he was in touch or in contact with me, and I was Cantor's translator into English. And that manifested itself in 1989, when I was invited by Cantor to participate in an event organized at Georges Pompidou Centre in Paris when he, was, when he received uh, an honorary uh, legion. I was representing the United States at the conference that was put together at that time. Cantor also needed a historian, someone who would be able to engage with him not only on the level of a critical production, but also historically. I was his translator. Uh, I was at the time writing about his theater. I was trying to locate his theater in the context of various different uh, traditions. He died, although nobody thought he, he would. It was a not completely unexpected event. How did that right. how did that impact you and your work and I guess your life? I think that to this day, there is no day that I don't see the mark of Cantor's uh, influence on my life. Uh, whether I read his writings or translate him into English or I do other work. Uh, there, the problem, as you know, if you are so intimately engaged with translating 
somebody else's work into a different language. Uh, you constantly feel as if you're walking in the head of that person. Cantor's uh, writing, even in Polish, uh, reads like poetry. So how do you translate that into English? My encounter with Cantor it was very intimate on that level. And when he, when he suddenly died? Well, it was um, very traumatic. <laughs> you know, 25 years after Cantor's death, uh, I feel committed to talking about his theater and uh, changing how I talk about his theater and trying to reveal certain aspects about Cantor's theater that also are connected with how my thinking changes. To learn more about Tadeusz Kantor and Professor Michał Kobiałka, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Milanovek is a small town less than an hour drive from Warsaw. It was a popular summer resort for wealthy residents of Warsaw, who built lavish summer homes there, which often became their permanent residences as ground villas. During World War II, an urn with the heart of Frederick Chopin, transferred from the Warsaw Holy Cross Church, was stored in a church in Milanovek. But this is not all. In fact, for most Poles and fashion connoisseurs all over the world, the name Milanovek is mostly associated with silk. It is there that Europe's largest plant-producing silk is located. It produced silk from the 1920s until the 90s. For decades, Milanovek has been synonymous with amazing silk painted by superb artists. You can buy stylish clothes made of the beautiful silk fabric in numerous stores in the town itself. But how did silk find its way to Milanovek? Brother and sister, Henrik and Stanislava Vitacek, inherited the passion for silk from their great-grandfather, engineer Rudolf Gillem, a shareholder in the silk company founded in Warsaw back in 1853. The family was deported in 1914 to Russia, to Caucasus. This is where they acquired extensive knowledge about silk production. They did a special course and gained experience in silk manufacturing in what is now the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. When they returned to Poland after the end of World War I, their enthusiasm to create a silk empire in Milanovek met with skepticism, but they persisted and for decades worked on developing the special reputation of the Milanovek silk. They planted mulberry trees which provided food for silkworms. Soon the whole local population joined and began farming silkworms. The family opened a chain of stores called Milanovek. Just before the war, Henrik and Stanislava demonstrated that silk is not only an exquisite, delicate fabric, but because it's extremely durable, it's ideal for producing military parachutes. This was not forgotten, and when the incredibly dynamic and innovative enterprise under the management of Henrik Vitacek and his sister was taken over by the German Nazis when the Second World War broke out, that's exactly what the Germans used it for to make parachutes. And after the war, when the communist pro-Soviet government eradicated all private enterprise, the business, formerly run by the family, was nationalized. It continued making beautiful silk, painted by artists, which was admired and valued by fashion lovers all over the world.
In our last episode, you met Eli Rubenstein, a Jewish religious leader in Toronto, educator, author, national director of the March of the Living. We spoke about the march and how it has changed over the years. Today, part two of our conversation, in which we talk about two other important projects authored by Eli Rubinstein and related to Poland. 2001, you co-created this unique program, which is called March of the Rem- Remembrance and Hope. Yes. How do you evaluate it looking back at its 15 years? It's different from March of the Living. It's special. The March of the Living is a program um, which has basically two two branches. The first branch is Jewish identity and Zionism in Israel and, and, and connection to our Jewish past and our Jewish heritage, etc., etc. And the second branch is more universal. It is about human rights and racism and fighting intolerance against any member of society that's being discriminated against. The March of Remembrance and Hope is a program that is only goes to Germany and Poland, starts off in Ger- Germany, two days in Germany, and five or six days in Poland. And that is not aimed at Jewish high school students. It doesn't really have a focus on Jewish identity. It's aimed at Canadian students of all backgrounds, Christian, Muslim, First Nations, Hindu, Buddhist, and yes, some Jewish students go on that as well. And the goals of that program are more universal. The reason we started that program was because, first of all, we realized that the Holocaust didn't happen just because the Jews were weak and defenseless. It happened because the rest of the world let it happen. So we must reach out to the world to teach them about the Holocaust. And secondly, we also realize that the Holocaust has universal lessons, that in the last century it was a Jew suffering genocide, but since then there's other, other minorities who suffer genocide as well, like in Rwanda or in Sudan or in Bosnia or in Cambodia um, and what's happening today among the Yazidis. So we must teach, we must take the Holocaust as a lesson not just for what happened to the Jews, but what can happen to anybody in any part of the world at any period of time. And so that's the, the, the universal lessons of the March of Remembrance and Hope. And we have seen these students graduate from these programs and go across the world and across their communities, as I said, Muslim, First Nation, Christian, and really made, make wonderful changes and, and positive impact on society from what they've learned on these trips. You have published a book, which is called Witness, Passing the Torch of Holocaust Memory to New Generations, which is, um, which is a story of everything you have really done. I encourage everyone who hasn't seen the book yet to purchase a copy because we're doing the second edition because the first edition is almost sold out. And the first edition has introduction written by Pope Francis, and the second edition will have another story about Pope John Paul II. There is nothing in the book about hatred or revenge or bitterness. The book is all about... The courage and the eloquence of the Holocaust survivors and the young students who hear their testimony in the very places that unfolded. When a survivor says to a young person in Auschwitz-Birkenau, I don't hate, and the student says, how could you not hate what the Nazis did? And he says, because hatred poisons the one who does the hating. I hold them responsible. I don't hate because hate poisons the one who does the hating. That's a life lesson this young person learns, that no matter what happens, I'm not going to let the hatred enter my heart. That's the kind of wisdom we learn from the survivors and you find in the book. When Faggy Libin says that I learned after the war, if I'd hate in my heart, I wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't have room for love, so I chose love, that's a beautiful thing for a young person to learn. And that, those kinds of quotes appear throughout the book. And you have in the book moments when you see survivors 
relating to the students what it's like to be a young people, a young person during the Holocaust. There's a moment where um, Helena Birenbaum says she was uh, pushed into a gas chamber in Auschwitz-Birkenau, and for whatever reason, the gas did not go on. She thought she was going to die, and her last thought was, I'm going to go to my death, never having experienced a true love's kiss. And that's when she tells that to the students. I mean, you can see the students thinking about how precious and lucky am I, at, am I to have friends and family and, and to have the hope of experience that first love's true kiss. And so these young people are hearing the stories, stories of the survivors in the very places they unfold, and that's reflected in the book. And I want to read you um, the last poem of the book, which reflects the ethic I'm talking about. This is a poem written by Jennifer Staffenberg in the 1994 March of the Living. Unprompted. She wasn't told to write this poem, but this is what she got from the experience. And she writes as follows. And still I cannot hate. I see bones and hair, shoes and glasses, while in a Nazi hell ruled by the devil's brother, but still I cannot hate. I see women's brushes, men's prayer shawls, and babies' tattered clothing, but still I cannot hate. I see splintered boards where people laid their weary bodies to rest. I see where people slaved and tried to exist, and still I cannot hate. I see the death and destruction, but still I cannot hate. I won't continue this tragedy. I won't spread the disease. I won't fan the flames that hate like this inspires. So those are the beautiful words from a 17-year-old girl. You know, after experiencing, you know, the evils and the horrors of Auschwitz-Birkenau, she comes out saying that still she can't hate. Certainly we can as well. And one other thing about the book I'd like to share with you is that it's an interactive book first time in Canada it's ever been done, as far as I know, where you take your smartphone and you put it over the picture of the survivor or the righteous among the nations who appears in the book, and it takes you to their testimony on the Steven Spielberg side of the March of the Living site. So, for instance, on one page, you have a beautiful picture of Sidney Zoltak being embraced by his rescuer, Sigmund Krinsky, who hit him in his barn for 14 months. And if you put your picture on Sidney Zoltak's face, you will be taken to him in Treblinka, standing next to Sigmund Krinsky's son, Stanislav Krinsky, hugging him and telling the kids the worst part about my experience in the Holocaust. After I got out of the barn in Semetitia, nearby Semetitia where he was hidden, I went back to my hometown. None of my friends were alive. They were all murdered. And he looked at the kids and said, you want a class reunion? The only place I can have a class reunion is here among the 17,000 stones in Treblinka where all my friends are murdered. That's how the book comes to life. You not only read the words of the survivors and the righteous among the nations on the pages, you are taken to their stories on the Steven Spielberg website, a foundation website, or the March website, where you can get an expanded version of what they have to say and see them actually talking to the young people in the places where the stories unfolded. And, and that transmission of memory from survivor to young person, from righteous among the nations, Polish righteous among the nations, to the young people, I think is, is the central value of the March of the Living. What do you think needs to be done, and what do you think should be avoided by both communities? to achieve what we all need, which is bringing Poles and Jews together. The mutual respect, compassion, the celebration of the good past and reconciliation of those elements that are painful. I think what we need to do is, is um, be honest about the past in a way that allows us to move forward. But the past is, is a very complex terrain. We could argue about who had more or less responsibility during the Holocaust, uh, during the Holocaust years. Could the Poles have done more, et cetera, et cetera. And I have my own views on that. 
But you have to start from a place of today I want to build better relations. Today I want to make sure that Poles and Jews appreciate each other today and appreciate the good things I had together in the past. Let's start from that perspective, not who's going to score points, who's going to show who did what. Let's start from that. Let's start from we want to build a more peaceful, tolerant society for all members of the human family, and we're starting with Poles and Jews. That's number one. Number two, let's not speak in generalizations. You know, I mean, if you, I'm sure as you read the internet, every time you know something, there's there's some Polish Jewish issue comes up. Some of the comments that people make are so ill-informed and so ignorant. And they're on both sides. You know, some Jews will say all Poles collaborated with the Nazis during the Holocaust and the Nazis, which is an absurd statement. I mean, and, of course, some Polish people will say that, oh, the Jews collaborated with the communists and, and all Poles are righteous among the nations. I mean, were there, were there Poles are righteous among the nations? Of course there were. Were there Poles who collaborated? Of course there were. But that's not all of Poland. You know, the, most Poles neither collaborated with the Nazis or saved Jews during the Holocaust for a variety of complex reasons. But I think we have to avoid these sweeping generalizations on both sides and, and, and look at the true history of that period of time. The true history is a very difficult history because, you know, when you are, uh, when a nation like Poland is suffering its own genocide, suffering its own terrible persecution um, by an evil force of Nazi Germany, it's very hard to expect people like that to all of a sudden rise up and, and become the most noble force in the history of humanity. Start off with the goal of we want to achieve peace and brotherly and sisterly love between us. And secondly, avoid sweeping generalizations because they're just ahistorical. They're simply not true. In the last episode, we played this sound, wondering if you can guess what it is and where in Poland you can hear it. What you heard is the most popular Polish military march, Warszawianka 1831 roku, La Warsowin, the Song of Warsaw 1831. Very few people know that it is actually of French origin. The song was written in support of the November uprising of 1830-31 by the French poet Casimir de la Vigne. Between the late 18th century and the end of World War I, Poland was partitioned by three powers, Russia, Prussia and Austria. Poles tried to overthrow its rulers and regain independence through a number of heroic uprisings. One of them broke out in November 1830, and this is why it's called the November Uprising. French poet Delavigne was fascinated and inspired by the news of the uprising and wrote the words which were translated into Polish by the historian, journalist and poet Karol Sienkiewicz, the great-uncle of Henryk Sienkiewicz, Nobel Prize laureate for literature. Music was composed by Karol Kurpiński. Where can you hear this piece? During a ceremonial change of guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier, for example, when foreign heads of state come to visit Poland.
The monument, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, located at Piłsudski Square, is the only surviving part of the beautiful Saxon palace that occupied that spot until World War II, and then it was completely destroyed. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? And what is it? You've been listening to the 15th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals, and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In our next episode, we will tell you how a Canadian astronomer of Polish descent has been recording UFO sightings for 27 years, about something as Polish as storks and Polish vodka, how Poles have embraced Oxford-style debates, and we'll leave you with one of many songs inspired by Jewish culture in Poland. Song titled Little Town Called Bells. Już nie bój się nocy I ludziom w oczy patrz W miasteczku Bełz Minęło tyle lat Harmonia znów gra Obłoki płyną w dal Znów toczy się świat Wypiękniał nasz Bełz W ogrodach na grobach bez Nikt nie chce pamiętać, nikt nie chce znać smaku łez I tylko gdy śpisz, samotny i sam I tylko gdy śpisz, płyniesz, giniesz tam Gdzie tata i mama przy tobie są znów I czule pilnują malutkich twych Miasteczko bez Kochany mój bez W poranne gazety ubrany Spokojnie się budzi bez Łagodny świt 
zwyczajnych dni rytmu. W niedzielę bezpieczna nad rzekę wycieczka i w krzakach szept. A w piekarni pachnie chleb, koń nad owsem schyla łeb. Zakochanym nieba How a Canadian astronomer of Polish descent has been recording UFO sightings for 27 years. and how Poles have embraced Oxford-style debates. Pierścionek na szczęście w przemyśle zajęcie w niedzielę chrzest. Białe ziarno, czarny mak młodej żony, słodki smak. Kroki w sieni. Nie drżyj tak. To nie oni. To tylko. Tak jakoś. 